Cats are the number one killers of birds. Second place, windows. Well, the estimates are up to one billion birds a year, and that's just in the United States. We're losing a lot of birds to windows. Luckily, we can fix that. So it can be uh, really small efforts for people to do at home where they're just putting up little decals. And you can pick something pretty, like you can choose flowers or birds, or even something boring like a series of dots. But it's enough for the birds to recognize that the window is there and not to fly into it. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, securing the future for Earth's animals, including us. Later in the show, polar bear habitats are disappearing. But first, Karen Powers is a professor of biology at Radford University. Over five years, she and her students have found that most of the birds die on the campus in the same place, the beautiful alcove of death. Now the university is responding. Karen, how deadly are windows for birds? How many are estimated to be killed by flying into windows every year? Well, the estimates are up to one billion birds a year, and that's just in the United States. And that is second only to uh, feral cats as to the, the number of birds that die from these mortality reasons each year. So it's a pretty serious issue. I can't believe it's that high. How can birds even survive that population loss? Well, um, a lot of the birds that are dying are young of the year birds. So they are some of those who were born during the summer. And we already recognize that they're very naive and not all those birds make it each year. A lot of our birds are migrating through. So they're in very unfamiliar territories. They're passing through for the first time. They're sort of learning the ropes. But unfortunately, whether you are an adult or a juvenile bird, what you see reflected in the window is uh, not necessarily the inside of a building. You're going to see a reflection of trees. You'll see a reflection of sky, things that look safe for the bird. So those young birds don't necessarily perceive that there's a threat and they fly into the window. And sometimes that's the last choice that they make. Which windows do you think are worst for them? Larger windows? Yeah, generally it's windows with a lot of contiguous window area. So where I work on a university campus, our architecture is really switching from that stately red brick buildings now to big expanses of windows where you have an entire wall of windows, which is gorgeous because you're getting all that, that nice ambient light, but it's also sometimes a death trap for the birds. So those larger windows basically paint a larger picture for the birds to see a point of safety with trees and sky reflecting in those windows. I read there's one part of your campus your students have called the alcove of death. What's the alcove of death? <laughs> Actually, I, I think I may have named that and the students picked up on that. Yeah. But the alcove of death is unfortunately a wall of windows that was created in a renovation of our science building. And it is. It, it's created a beautiful atrium that is wonderful to sit inside. And there's a, a patio outside for the beautiful spring days like today. But unfortunately, you hear a lot of thunks at that window because a lot of what reflects is actually a garden. So it's got beautiful trees and the sky. And unfortunately, it's what drives the birds in to, to hit that window. They just don't know any better. And you've been there when you've heard the awful thud? Yeah, I have uh, several times, actually. And I've also had students who were sitting out on the patio report it to me as well. So it's it's unfortunate event that happens more than we would like to. But I actually do have some good news about that alcove. Uh, next week, the administration has, has, has contracted a company to put some bird deterring film up on that window. So we're hoping that that will actually reduce bird deaths significantly. And I'm so happy that our research is having a positive outcome because of this. What is bird deterring film? Is, is this widely used? And do you put it on the inside or outside? 
It is definitely widely used, and it's actually something that people can buy off the internet and use in their own homes. So it can be uh, really small efforts for people to do at home where they're just putting up little decals. And you can pick something pretty, like you can choose flowers or birds, or even something boring like a series of dots. But they generally are somewhat translucent, so they're not gaudy. But it's enough for the birds to recognize that the window is there and not to fly into it. And on a larger scale, uh, what we are doing for our huge alcove of death is to set up a series of dots that are about a foot apart from one another. And if you have this series of dots across the whole expanse of the window, it's enough to deter the birds and uh, keep everybody safe and still have a, a very beautiful alcove. Have you read about other places, other campuses, other cities also doing this with gusto? Sure. Our research methods actually follow a large uh, multi-state, multi-university project that I think began in the early 2000s. Uh, so it's been going on across dozens upon dozens of campuses. We're doing the same type of studies uh, with the same type of methods. So we can basically compare our results across multiple universities. And there are also universities who are stepping up and putting up this bird deterring film as well. So it's something that has been shown to work, is safe for the windows, and is also safe for the birds. Have you heard any movement toward trying to get new construction to come with windows that already have bird deterring features? Yes, we have actually looked into that. I have had several meetings with our facilities department at the university, and I understand that some windows can come with basically a, a darker tint to them, which is enough to deter the birds. But I understand that in the long term, uh, it might not be sufficient, that that tint will sometimes fade just because of sunlight and may only last for 10 or 20 years. When you consider the lifetime of a building, it could be 100 or even more than that. So if you're looking at permanent solutions or things that give you a little bit more flexibility, then the film is the way to go. One of the things you and the students are doing is installing cameras at various locations. What's that doing for you? Yes, uh, I've had upwards of 50 students who have helped me in the, the last five years doing surveys. One set of students wanted to deploy game cameras around our campus. They put um, maybe a decoy or even, sad to say, one of our deceased birds in front of the camera. And we were able to track how long it took for a scavenger to find that bird. It was one of the ways to document what scavengers we had on campus. And I will give you a hint, feral cats are the number one scavenger. Sure. Uh, but we also have raccoons and skunks as well. What species of birds are most vulnerable, do you think? I would almost say what species aren't vulnerable. It's, right. it's a huge number. At Radford in the last five years, we have documented 50 species of birds in over 200 legitimate hits. I think we're even up to 250. And it kind of shows that practically no bird species is safe and that like the birds that we love to watch at our bird feeders are also the same ones that are most likely to hit all the windows too. So I always tell folks that if they like to watch birds, if they buy bird seed for their bird feeders, why not buy decals too and keep them safe while they're feeding? I understand the students are also doing surveys. What do the surveys want to track? Yes, uh, this is what we do every single day. Um, I have students that are doing surveys around campus around 15 of our buildings, which is roughly half of our campus buildings. They are walking through the bushes. They are peeking through the mulch and digging around and looking for any carcasses of birds that hit windows. But uh, we've got folks that are basically doing walks for between two and four hours a day if you accumulate all of the efforts for about half the year is what it adds up to. So it's an enormous amount of effort for us to have found all of these birds. 
and occasionally uh, we get the police called on us. <laughs> but uh, enough folks now know that we are pretty harmless and that all we're looking for is birds. And you're preserving a lot of these birds, right? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I have uh, become quite the taxidermist in the last couple of years. Um, I, I have always been good at taxidermying mammals, but birds, birds intimidated me quite a bit. But uh, our freezers were starting to fill, and I also teach a vertebrate zoology course. So I thought, why not find the silver lining in this? And I dove right in and gave it my best shot. And some of my first taxidermies look embarrassing and terrible. <laughs> and, you know, they, they grew a third wing occasionally, but uh, I've gotten better over the years. And we have actually quite the excellent natural history collection now, thanks in part to the Bird Window Collision Survey Project. This is reminding me of a story I read about the artist Tasha Tudor. She would find animals that had been killed on the road or in some way, and preserve them and then study them and paint them and did very lifelike drawings, sort of Audubon style. Yes, except Audubon shot his birds, so I guess yeah. that's a little bit different. <laughs> Scavenging is yeah, much so we, Yes, we don't have to resort to shooting and posing the birds anymore. As you say, we're losing so many birds to window strikes and even more to cats but we are losing bird population at a rapid pace overall, right? Yes, yes. There was actually a study in the, the journal Science a couple years ago that estimated that we've lost 3 billion birds. That's billion with a B since 1970. And that uh, turns out to be about a 29% loss on the landscape from abundance estimates just 50 years ago or so. And eventually that's going to catch up to us, unfortunately. Do you think a lot of that is habitat? A big chunk is habitat, yes. I know that the ones that are hardest hit are actually grassland birds because a lot of our native grasslands have been converted to housing subdivisions and uh, new malls and parking lots and things like that. So it does depend on the habitat preferences of the animal as far as uh, the declines that have been measured. Uh, but yes, habitat loss is certainly a, a big reason for the, for the loss of 3 billion birds. You know, there are things that we can do to curb cats or put film on windows and that kind of thing. But then there are mm -hmm. advocates who say, let's just preserve vast quantities of native lands, right? And just recognize that there's no economic gain. We just want to keep it so. Oh, sure. That, that, if that's an option, I'm all for it. I teach a conservation biology class. So we're always talking about, can we preserve land? How should we prioritize? Recognizing that we have a limited number of resources. What should we focus them on? If habitat preservation is one of them, that's actually one of the cheaper methods to preserve a species is just by basically setting aside land for them, letting them live their lives. So if we could just set aside that land, I think that would have a much bigger impression and, and save a lot more animals than waiting until they're almost extinct to try and save the few that are left. Karen Powers, this is wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Happy to do so. I enjoyed this. Karen Powers is a professor of biology at Radford University. Polar bears are no one's prey. The only real threat to them comes from climate change. Polar bear habitats are disappearing beneath their feet as the earth warms. John Whiteman is a professor of animal biology at Old Dominion University and the chief research scientist for Polar Bears International. John, what is it that makes polar bears such important symbols of climate change? Sure, they are by far the most globally well-known species whose habitat literally melts underneath their feet as the temperature warms. So really there's no better symbol for the consequences of climate change and warming temperatures than an animal whose habitat disappears as it gets warmer. You know, we're used to success stories with big endangered mammals like pandas, wolves, grizzly bears. Is there a chance of that for polar bears, do you think? 
You know, what's interesting about the modern history of polar bears is that you could say it's a two-part story. And right now, we absolutely have the option to make the second part of this story a success. The first part of the story took place from the 50s or so into the 80s. And that's because there was an international agreement that for the first time regulated polar bear harvest by humans. And that took effect in the 70s. And there was a clear beneficial effect of that in which the polar bear populations at the global scale appeared to really rebound from being over-harvested by hunting. At that point, what became the most important global dynamic in polar bear population trajectories became the loss of sea ice associated with climate change. And the good news with climate change is that while we are absolutely in an emergency state with it, things are getting better. We are reducing the pathway of emissions that we're on right now. We just need to keep reducing it more, and we still have the opportunity to give the polar bear story a happy ending. You know, right now, the current best global estimate is 26,000 for the total number of bears on the planet out in the wild. Roughly how many bears were lost to hunting before it was stopped in the 1970s? Sure. Um, Part of the dynamic that happened is all the technological innovation that World War II spurred suddenly allowed uh, modern machinery and modern hunting techniques and aerial hunting, for example, via planes. It allowed that to explode in the 50s, and it suddenly made things like sport hunting of polar bears which before was you know, highly inaccessible just because of the very remote and challenging habitat in which polar bears live, it made that more accessible. And uh-huh. so sport hunting and harvesting of polar bears took off in a big way um, in different parts of the Arctic post-World War II. So that 20, 30-year period after World War II is when the effects of that over-harvest were happening, which is what made that international agreement that regulated the harvest starting as of the 70s so important. What is the state of affairs for polar bears right now? What is happening with their population? Sure. So the most important thing to understand first is that there is no single global polar bear population. Instead, there are 19 different distinct geographic clusters where if there's a bear that's born, for example, on the sea ice north of Alaska, there's a very good chance that bear is going to spend its whole life in that region. It's going to mate in that region, produce cubs in that region, and then probably end its life there as well. Each one of those areas has unique sea ice dynamics. And as a result of that is facing the challenge of sea ice loss in subtly different ways at the moment. So the areas that already had kind of marginal sea ice conditions that weren't the best for polar bears, those places are showing the negative consequences on the polar bears first. There's other places that have a lot of sea ice, and in fact, some extremely far north that you could say have a little bit too much sea ice in that the sea ice is so continuously present and so thick that it's hard for polar bears to do the hunting of seals that they normally do. So those populations could actually experience a very transient benefit in the near future um, as the climate warms and that sea, the sea ice in those areas are reduced. Ultimately, in the long run, as you lose sea ice, you lose bears. It's, it's um, almost like the law of gravity. You know, there's, these bears, their ecology, their lifestyle is so tied to sea ice that that punchline is pretty unavoidable. Why can't the bears simply move to lands that are colder or have more ice or have ideal conditions for hunting? Sure, that's a great question. So um, basically there's nowhere left to go because they live at the top of the planet and they, the bears can't shift to anywhere else that would have more sea ice. Polar bears can't just move to shore either. You know, there's plenty of land in parts of the Arctic. But the problem with that is polar bears are very good at hunting seals from the sea ice, and they're honestly pretty bad at everything else. So when they're on land, they will do things like chase down waterfowl and catch them and eat them if they can, or they will raid uh, bird nests and eat the eggs on land if they can find them, or they they will eat caribou even on occasion. So polar bears have been observed doing all of these things, but when you add up all the calories that are available in those land-based resources, and you evaluate how successful polar bears are at obtaining those resources, the math simply is impossible to replace the very high-density energy food that polar bears obtain when they're out on the sea ice catching seals. Do you love polar bears? Do you enjoy being around them? I do. I love being around polar bears. I would say more broadly, though, I simply love being in the natural world. 
I, I absolutely adore working with the species. I think they're fascinating. And a lot of that for me is because of how they tie into the broader natural world that we all occupy and that we should all treasure. Give me a taste of what you love about being in that world. And where are you? Sure. There's a moment um, that I have in mind that I, I think of sometimes. We were on an icebreaker, actually, because we were trying to sample polar bears that had followed the retreating sea ice north for the summer. And these days, the ice retreats so far north, you can no longer reach it um, from shore uh, in Alaska, which is where we were working. So instead, we had to put the helicopters onto an icebreaker and then steam that icebreaker far north, um, up to about 80 degrees north or so, so closing in on the North Pole. And then when we were up there, we reached the sea ice finally. We took the helicopters off the ship, and then we went looking for polar bears. And we landed on the sea ice, and I got out of the helicopter and walked off in the distance by myself for a little while, and it was just a big, open, flat pan of sea ice. And I just remember looking around and seeing a crack in the ice and looking down at how incredibly dark the water was in that crack and thinking, you know, there's there's miles of ocean uh, below me and there are miles and miles of open wilderness around me and this spot where I'm at right now is constantly changing yet it is as close to on earth as we can get to an unaltered habitat and there's so much happening right there at that moment you know there's the nutrient cycling in the water there's the forming and the melting and the reforming of the sea ice and the atmospheric currents and all of the uh, phytoplankton and zooplankton and the Arctic cod and the whole food system and food chain. And it's just this, this very dynamic, active process that is, e even in just one spot like that, to me, it's so much more intricate and complex than anything we could ever come up with that having the opportunity to see it up close is really something else. It's so wonderful to hear you say that because you're a stand-in for the rest of us. I mean, you are our eyes and our heart and sensory perceptions, right? The rest of us are not going to be able to step off a helicopter from an icebreaker ship and land in the middle of pristine earth and feel that. And yet we have a responsibility for keeping it that way. Yeah, and that's... Um most people on the planet are never going to see a polar bear uh, and almost certainly not in the wild, right? People might have the opportunity to see one at the zoo, but very few people get the opportunity to see one in the wild in their habitat. And so you find yourself working on a species that is immediately tied to conservation issues, yet most people will never see one and most people will never necessarily directly benefit in an obvious way from one, which then raises the question. And I think this is a very, you know, it's, it is a scientific question and it's woven through every conservation issue we ever face. And that is, where does value come from? Why do we value this species or this ecosystem or this process or this planet? And a very immediate answer that I think a lot of us still don't have a deep enough appreciation for is that what happens to the wilderness, what happens to the ecosystems, what happens to the planet, it happens to us. And so we, you know, in the most basic way, we should say that we care about what happens to polar bears because it's going to happen to us too. And then a second answer um, that I think is also equally important is that it gives us an opportunity to pause and think for a second, what kind of species are we? Are we the kind of species that takes away the right of a different species to exist, period? Because that's what extinction is. If we drive a species to extinction, we've removed the right, not just from the individual animals, but of that entire species, of that branch of life, of the tree of life. We've just snipped it off. And that's a very profound thing to do. People from, you know, it, it's no longer a thing about politics or a thing about perspectives on conservation or um, even perspectives on, you know, the, the utility of what's going to happen to the planet happening to us. But instead, it's a it's a, it's a human value of that's not who we are. You know, we are, we as a society, we're a society that wants to, whenever we can, give everybody a shot. And that everybody, you know, includes giving the planet a shot and all the other inhabitants on it. Do you think humans are driving polar bears to extinction? At the moment, 
humans are driving polar bears towards extinction. And I say that with confidence because everything we know about polar bears points back toward them having evolved to rely exclusively on sea ice for their habitat. And unless we slow down and eventually reverse the warming of the planet, we will lose sea ice. Soon we'll lose it in the summer. It'll come back in the winter, but we'll lose it in the summer. We'll have completely ice-free Arctic summers. And then eventually we'll lose it in the winter as well, the ice. And at that point, of course, polar bears absolutely will go extinct. And this is where the question of conservation comes back to the utility of understanding that what happens to the planet ultimately happens to us as well. Because if we hit the point where we have lost all of the sea ice, and as a result, we have completely lost every last polar bear on Earth, the potential consequences for human society are so dire that at that point, uh, you know, you can only wave your hands and say questions of conservation may no longer be relevant because the global human systems will have undergone such a dramatic upheaval by then. What do you most want us to do? Um, Double down on understanding that we as a planet, we as a society, we as Americans, we as citizens of whatever state you're in, we have the ability to continue the positive trajectory we're on in that we are reducing emissions, we're making a switch away from planet heating fuels over to more efficient sources, and we are kind of making mainstream the idea of sustainability for the long term. And sustainability, again, it's not a political term or it's not a political position or anything like that. It's simply the idea of do we want to be able to continue everything that we know so far? And I think everybody across the board would say, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff that we have developed in society that we would like to be able to sustain in the long run. And I think it's really important to remember that all of this is within our control. Nothing is inevitable about this whatsoever. So make climate change concern um, a very important part of how you frame every big issue, an important part of how you vote, an important part of how you talk about current events with your friends and family. Um, And I think, you know, Ideally, and to somewhat realistically, the direction of our society and the direction that uh, societal leaders go in, that is derived from the thoughts and the actions that we all have on a very small daily basis, you know. John Whiteman, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. John Whiteman is a professor of biological sciences at Old Dominion University. He's also the chief research scientist for Polar Bears International. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Be honest, when you see a critter crawling through your house, do you smash it? If there's an unfamiliar vine in your garden, do you start spraying? We've all done it, and that makes us all part of the problem. We're sending critters and plants to early graves just because. And my next guest hates that. All of us need to maybe live a little more humbly and consume less and be more curious about things and less reactionary toward the things we we don't understand because it's just my opinion that if these animals evolved to be here, they have a right to exist, right? And I, and I just really think we have to stop, ask questions, try to inform ourselves, and be compassionate instead of, like, if you see a snake in the backyard running to get a shovel and smashing it. Todd Tupper is a professor of biology at Northern Virginia Community College, and he says we should live more humbly and mindfully. Todd, you're a big fan of toads and frogs and other creatures. Did you grow up around critters? I did. When I was five, my parents moved to a small town in Connecticut called Wolcott, Connecticut, and It was relatively rural at the time, and in the backyard was a pond and a stream. And 
I, I was five, but even prior to that, I, I had an interest in reptiles and amphibians. But once I got there, I was in my glory. It was magical. Yeah. <laughs> in your glory. <laughs> yeah. Tell me some of your bullfrog or snake or reptile stories. When when I was a kid, my mother got me a, a book uh, from, I think the library was probably tossing it. And she, she picked it up. And it's called The First Book on Snakes. And I still have it. And when I was very young, the first time I saw it was a drawing of a snake, I thought it was the most beautiful, fantastic thing I'd ever seen. And I was just immediately drawn to that animal. I don't know why, because hmm. most people on the planet have the other gene, the other allele that tells them to go away from from that animal. But I, I found it fascinating. So when we moved from an apartment into like a rural neighborhood, more rural then, not so much now, there were snakes sort of similar to the one I saw in that book in the backyard. And I would get so excited when I saw them and when I caught them that my knees would shake. Uh, I suppose one of the first memories I have is of being in the woods next to the house and flipping over an old decaying door that was on the ground. And there were garter snakes underneath it. And when I saw that black and yellow, I, I don't know what it is about these snakes, but I got so excited I could remember my knees shaking. And I tried and tried and tried to catch these things. And eventually I got good at it. And uh, even just, just handling them, I thought they felt fantastic. Just I was drawn to them like a magnet. How did you handle them? Would you grab them behind the head? No. I felt bad grabbing them behind the head. So if it were a bigger water snake, like a northern water snake, and if it was really bitey, I would grab it by the head until it calmed down. But generally, I would just pick them up and let them bite me. Any terrible stories from that or was that okay? No, no. I mean, their their yeah. ferocity and bite are so grossly over-exaggerated. Right. What sort of species do you think you encountered? Were there were there black snakes? Yeah, yeah. There were black racers, black rat snakes, garter snakes, water snakes, ringneck snakes, hognose snakes. It was great. But I can remember the first time I saw a black racer. I was probably about eight and I was in the woods. And to an eight-year-old, a five and a half foot black racer, it looks like a an anaconda. And it was so big and and so quick, I was a little intimidated and I was not able to to get that one. Is that native to that area? Yeah. Yeah. What else? What other critters? Well, uh, when I was nine, I remember, and this poor snapping turtle, I dove into a, a really mucky wetland and pulled out this, what to me at the time was a giant snapping turtle. Of course, they're not giant animals, but they're hefty. And I did my best, bent over to uh, get this thing back home. And I was so proud of myself to show my dad. And uh, my dad always uh, felt bad for the animals when I would bring them home. And he would say, you know, they're not happy here and they belong in their natural environment where they're not stressed out. And, you know, he always emphasized me releasing them as soon as possible. And as a kid, I didn't, I didn't realize the ramifications of what I was doing, like pulling these animals out of their, out of their natural habitat and putting them in a cage for a while and watching them. For me, it was really educational. For them, it was torture, probably. But I brought this big snapping turtle home, and my dad felt really bad for the turtle. And he got some kielbasa from upstairs, and he came downstairs where I had it. And the snapping turtle actually ate the kielbasa. And so <laughs> uh, we, we released the turtle shortly thereafter. It had its meal. Were there also frogs and, like, Mississippis and green turtles? You know, it's really sad. There were American toads, there were spring peepers, uh, bullfrogs, green frogs, and um, what else was there for frogs? I, I think that was about it. The, those species were in the immediate backyard. And by the time I was a teenager, all were gone except a couple of green frogs and bullfrogs. 
So no more spring peepers, no more American toads calling. Oh, there were also pickerel frogs in the stream, and they're gone too. You know, growing up, I also saw and heard lots of frogs, toads. There were also turtles, snakes, crawfish, salamanders. But especially with the frogs and turtles, I just don't see them anymore. What do you think is going on? Well, I mean, it's it's a you know sort of complicated problem, but reptiles and amphibians as a whole are a, a big part of the global biodiversity crisis, and lots of people like to kill them. Not necessarily amphibians, but certainly reptiles. I mean, I've seen people intentionally swerve to run over turtles. I've seen over and over and over again people bash and chop up snakes, and uh, if you combine that with runoff and pesticides and various other types of pollution and habitat loss and climate change, they're disappearing. And even even common species that were common uh, locally are, are not so common anymore. Are we yeah. in the midst of an actual global decline of amphibians and reptiles? Yeah. And, and other species as well. But, you know, those are vertebrates particularly the amphibians that are easy to detect because lots of the frogs and toads, they aggregate and make a lot of noise um, during springtime when it, when it comes time to reproduce. So monitoring programs for those are pretty well established and none of the trends are positive that I'm aware of. It's, it's unfortunate. What do you think we mostly need to focus on to try to reverse the decline? This is a, that's a complicated it's a complicated answer, but in, in my opinion, first and foremost, it's habitat loss. Yeah. W- without a doubt. And the United States is really good at pointing out how other countries are sort of treating their landscape. And there are some serious problems around the globe in terms of habitat loss. And, and certainly in some places, it's much more rapid than the U.S. But here, I think we, we have a problem too. I mean, we keep building out and out and out and out. And, you know, these natural areas that are protected are becoming these little tiny isolated, these little islands surrounded by a sea of concrete. And that's really detrimental on multiple levels for all of the wildlife that inhabits those preserves. And I think the land managers that are tasked with maintaining biodiversity on these little green islands in a sea of pavement, uh, they, they're, they're looking at something really challenging. But I would say beyond that, I think, you know, there needs to be a, a cultural shift, a shift in our paradigm. I think all of us need to maybe live a little more humbly and consume less and be more curious about things and less reactionary toward the things we don't understand. So, you know, if lots of people, if there's an unfamiliar insect in their house, will drop a book on it or crush a spider or run to the store and buy insecticides and start spraying immediately before they know what it is and they know what they're killing. And that mentality, I think, is a little bit unfair because it's just my opinion that if these animals evolve to be here, they have a right to exist, right? And I, and I just really think we have to stop, ask questions, try to inform ourselves, and be compassionate instead of like if you see a snake in the backyard running to get a shovel and smashing it, right? Intentionally killing things coupled with all those other things I mentioned – are really detrimental to organisms. And, I, and you know, I, I, I don't think we need to exist that way. So if we were a little, living a little more conservatively, a little more humbly, and on a whole, just more compassionate toward things we don't understand, we probably would make some progress. Do you find that your students in the community college where you teach are very receptive to that? Absolutely. Yeah, they're very, very receptive to it. And you know how 
Gen Z and millennials, they, they get a bad rap by the older generation. The older generation says, you know, whatever. I, I had to walk barefoot to school uphill in the snow <laughs> on glass both ways every day. You guys are weak. You guys are wimpy. It's my experience that that is not true, that this generation has to deal with a mountain of problems and a mountain of things that at my generation, Gen Xers, didn't have to deal with, right? We didn't have to worry about somebody coming to school with a gun, right? We didn't have to worry about cyberbullying. We didn't have these addictive devices in front of us 24-7, you know, robbing us of our attention span. We didn't have that stuff. So they have to really fight in this day and age to keep their head above water in a lot of ways. And they're also, in comparison to at least my generation when I was growing up, much more well-informed. I wouldn't say everybody, but by and large, more well-informed, more, more aware of what the environmental issues are in general. I mean, maybe my perception is a little biased because they're taking my classes and some of them are interested. A lot of the times when I'm teaching these concepts, it's like old news to them. And most people that take my classes are fully aware of the fact that they are facing a mess environmentally. I've read that you also have a deep appreciation, more than most people, for community colleges themselves, what they can do, what they do do, the service they are in communities. I do. Well, I have two perspectives on this. One is as a student at a community college and one is as a professor and even now interim associate dean. I never thought I would do any kind of administration. Um, mm -hmm. Let me tell you, it's a real blast. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was in high school, I was in what I remember as, by and large, learning disabled classes, level four classes in high school. And I got out of high school without ever having had a geometry class. And I was a little behind the curve in terms of education when I left high school. And I was in these learning disabled classes and I was not very challenged and I was bored. And I had a learning disabilities counselor. I don't even know what the learning disability was that they were picking up on. But one day the learning disabilities counselor sat me down and he probably shouldn't have done this, but he opened some file. The file had my IQ in there and he read huh. it to me and he said, what are you doing in here? And we all know now, well, we should have known then that IQ and learning disabilities have nothing to do with one another, right? But right. his approach might not have been entirely appropriate, but the sentiment was, right? And he, he picked up on something that I was bored and I wasn't challenged. And so he said, what do you like in reference to um, a subject to take? And I said, well, well, I like biology. And he said, well, how about we try to put you in AP bio and see how you do? <laughs> And I was like kind of dumbfounded, like, oh, okay, let's do it. Uh, so I took this AP bio class and luckily I had a friend, Melanie, who took the class before me and Melanie had notes. She already had a complete notebook. She had <clears throat> some of the old assignments completed. And so I really got to see how Melanie took notes and how Melanie approached the class. And from her, I started to learn how to study, how to organize a notebook. And she would sit on the couch with me for long periods of time and quiz me and make sure I knew, knew some of the stuff. But it turns out I got an A in AP Bio. Oh my God. And the teacher was fascinating and fantastic. And uh, I, I love the material. And I didn't, after I graduated, I went into a, I went to a community college. It was Naugatuck Valley Community College in, in Waterbury, Connecticut. And it was at that college that I really learned how to learn. Um, I spent a year there taking, 
I guess, remedial classes. And then I did two years at the, at the community college. But I, I fell in love with the atmosphere. There were people from all walks of life. Um, and I was really, I was exposed to teachers who were excited about teaching. They seemed to enjoy their jobs and enjoy their lives, quality of life. And I really don't have any memories of students complaining about being in classes. They were certainly appreciated and I, they certainly appreciated it. And I loved the environment overall. And I spent hours getting tutored and, and, uh, I, I sort of ate it up. One, that is once I got the classes that I enjoyed. So I did flounder for a bit, but then I took a biology class. And of, of course, I loved it and I did pretty well. And then I took a, a zoology class. And I had this zoology teacher named Paul Gern, who I really admired and still do today. And I, I looked up to him and I can remember one day in lab... I asked him a whole lot of questions about his life and about his job. So many questions that some of the other students made fun of me. Um, but <laughs> he was fantastic. He took the time to talk to me. And so I could remember specifically that day in lab, I was 19 and I said, okay, I want to teach at a community college. I want to get a PhD and teach at a community college. And so I went and did that. He encouraged me throughout, and here I am starting my 16th year of, of teaching. It's so fun to see how you are involving your students in fieldwork in zoology and biology. They actually do projects in the field. Yeah, they, they do. Um, so even though my goal was to teach at a community college, I did really get to enjoy the process of research in graduate school. I got, I got quite passionate about it for a while. And when I was an undergraduate, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to get involved in research that would result in peer-reviewed publications. So when I started at the community college, it was my goal to involve students in undergraduate research that would lead to them getting co-authorship on papers so that when they graduate undergrad, they would be a more marketable applicant to graduate school. So that's what I did. And I just sort of did it on my own. Well, I started it on my own and it kind of grew a little bit. It's a handful of professors that get together to sort of facilitate this. And I'm not talking like they're we're publishing in, in tier one journals, right? It's like local natural history journals. and But yeah, I, I involve them. My students have gone to Cape Cod National Re uh, Seashore to do field work. They've, gone, they've worked for the Fairfax County Park Authority uh, with Dave Lawler, who was the natural resource manager at Huntley Meadows Park. And when I was at one of the campuses of NOVA, the Alexandria campus, I worked with... Um, uh, a dean who was just really supportive and appreciative that we were doing these things. So she would work hard to get us money to make this happen. Her name's Maggie Emblem Callahan. Um, and she was very, very supportive of, of what we were doing and got money to get us equipment so that students can do field work and they can do lab work. And we hope have a broad skill set, again, so they are marketable as uh, graduate students when they finish undergrad. How important do you think the community colleges are in the whole spectrum of educational opportunities that are out there? I believe wholeheartedly in the mission of a community college, and that is to make adult education accessible to everyone. I think that is key. It is fundamental. And I also think that we need not view community colleges as just a vehicle to get into a four-year school, right? They serve a broader purpose. They serve the community by providing chances for the general community 
to get exposed to materials that they otherwise might not have a chance to get exposed to. And I think a lot of students at Northern Virginia Community College um, feel the same. Todd Tupper, what a treat. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Sure, my pleasure. Todd Tupper is a professor of biology at Northern Virginia Community College. If you're a radio hopeful and 18 to 22 years old, check out the two-week podcast academy called Levels Up. Just Google Levels Up Podcast Academy and apply by May 1st. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.